Good evening, everyone. As we turn our attention to our series titled Near to the Heart of God, it is a series based upon the prayers that we have uh, in the New Testament, and I've shared on other occasions uh, the motivating dimension of that for me was the fact that when I uh, took the time to actually study the prayers of the New Testament, I was brought up short. I recognized that I didn't pray the way the apostles prayed or prayed the way Jesus prayed, and it was a remarkable study uh, that uh, has motivated me to not only uh, focus on it myself, but also to share it with others whenever I could. And we've looked at, as the beginning point for this series, uh, what we call the Lord's Prayer, and we spent uh, several sessions on the Lord's Prayer. And in that session, uh, which you perhaps remember, uh, we recognize that it really isn't the Lord's Prayer. That the thing that we call the Lord's Prayer, which we sang together this morning, uh, is actually the Lord's instruction in prayer. Uh, the apostles recognized that there was something significant and different about the ministry of Jesus, a, a power, not only in the authority of his word, but also in the power to do the miraculous. But they also observed that Jesus would spend a great deal of time off by himself with the Father, praying. And they put two and two together, and they figured there must be some connection between the time that he was spending off by himself with the Father and the extraordinary power and fruitfulness of, of his ministry. So they came to Jesus and they said, teach us to pray. And that's when he gave uh, the disciples the, the Lord's, what we call the Lord's Prayer. But it really wasn't Jesus' prayer. It wasn't our Lord's Prayer. It was his, his instruction on praying. If you want to look for the Lord's Prayer, you find it essentially in John chapter 17. It's kind of interesting to me. There are many occasions in which uh, Jesus is said to be off by himself praying, but very few times in which we actually get a record of what he prayed for. And we have that in John chapter 17, when Jesus prays to the Father at the conclusion of the time that he was spending with them in the upper room, and they were able to eavesdrop on his actual praying with the Father and record the things that he said in it. And that's why we have called this the real Lord's Prayer. That's what is uh, taking place in John chapter 17. We've looked at this, uh, the first two sections of this sort of three-section prayer, and we recognize that in our study of those first two sections, we find the gospel from God's perspective. Uh, we usually look at the gospel of Jesus Christ from our perspective. We recognize our lostness. We recognize uh, the limits of anything that we could do. We recognize that we are destitute apart from a Savior. We recognize that Christ died and that he indicated that he died for the sins of all of those who would ever believe in him. And so we turn our lives over to him. We trust in him. We obey him and believe in him. And uh, as a result, we find ourselves saved by, by him. That's our perspective. But the gospel has another perspective, and that's God's perspective, and we see that in the context of Jesus, the Son of God, praying to his heavenly Father. And when he does that, he explores the fact that this is a cosmic gospel that goes way back in establishing the framework by which we might be saved. I would encourage you to follow along in your Bible so that we can uh, follow here what we're, uh, what we're looking at this evening. But let's take a look at the first five verses as we studied them earlier to get the sense of the gospel from God's perspective. Uh, this prayer begins, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. 
glorify your son, that the son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. That's the first portion of the prayer. Uh, We'll say a little bit more about that, but then the prayer then continues in verse 6, and we studied this on our last occasion together. He says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost." except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. Now, in those verses up through verse 19, we get a glimpse, as I mentioned, the gospel from God's perspective. And the first thing that we recognized in our study of that section was the primacy of the glory of God. Now, that's, again, one of the reminders that we're looking here from, at the gospel from God's perspective and not from our perspective. We look at it from our perspective in that we think there is a primacy of me being saved from an eternity in hell and that being given an opportunity to be in the presence of God, but it's more than that. God is concerned more than anything else that his glory would be manifested all over the world. And so that's what you see in this prayer, this most intimate of occasions in which Jesus himself prays to the Father. There are the primacy of glory. Jesus said he had glory with the Father before the incarnation. Jesus indicates that he set his glory aside in the incarnation. Jesus said that he has glorified the Father in his earthly ministry, and Jesus asked the Father to glorify him in the cross. All that is in the first five verses of this prayer. So there is the primacy of glory when you look at the gospel from God's perspective. There is nothing that demonstrates the nature and character of God than the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
That's what the glory of God is all about. The glory of God is a display, the manifestation of the nature and character of God. And there is nothing else that displays the nature and character of God than the gospel of Jesus Christ in which God the Father in love sends his son to a lost world, a world deep and darkened in sin and dies in, in place of all of those who would ever believe in him and is raised from the dead by the glory of the Father. And so you find every dimension of the nature and character of God invested in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's why when you find the Son praying to the Father and are able to eavesdrop on his conversation with his heavenly Father, you find that there is a primacy of the glory of God. And then in addition to that, we find, again, aspects of the gospel from God's perspective, that the Father takes a people out of the world and gives them to Jesus. And then he gives Jesus the authority to save them. And, he, and then Jesus then gives eternal life to those to whom he has been given. And so not only is there this primacy of glory, there is this economy of giving, the Father giving to the Son and the Son giving to those that the Father has given to him. We also have eternal life defined, and it's not defined in terms uh, that's quantitative. It's not defined in terms of a really, really, really long life. We cling to life these days. It's amazing how hard we cling to life. And so we tend to think that eternal life simply means that we're going to last forever. Well, that much is true, but that's not the way that Jesus defines eternal life when he's in conversation with his heavenly Father. He says, and this is eternal life, that they would know you, the Father, and the Son whom you've sent. So the knowledge of God in a qualitative way is what really constitutes eternal life. It's a qualitative, eternal kind of life. And that's one of the things that we find when you look at the gospel from God's perspective. We also learn from this prayer that Jesus manifests the glory of God to these people, and he does that by giving them God's word. They receive it, they understand it, they understand its source, they understand that Jesus then is from the Father himself. Uh, also in this, uh, in this prayer, we learn that Jesus has kept them. He has kept them safe from the evil one. But he also, we also learned that he's leaving them, and he's been telling them that for some time. They quite don't understand that at that particular point in time. He's kept them, but he's leaving them so that he asks the Father to do the keeping in the future, even as Jesus leaves them. He asks the Father in a very specific way to keep them in his name, and his name is Lord. Keep them under the Lordship of Jesus. Keep them safe from the evil one by keeping him in the name of Jesus, or the name, of the name of the Lord, essentially. And the way that that is said to happen in this prayer that we studied the last time we were together is by sanctification. And sanctification happens by the Word of God, the truth of God in the Word of God. And Jesus gives himself as a prime example. That's what the, uh, the glimpse of the gospel that we get from God's perspective as we are able to eavesdrop on this particular prayer. Now, we might ask the question, uh, what is the object of this prayer? In other words, for whom does Jesus actually pray in this prayer? Well, there are two answers to that question. I think the first uh, answer to that question is in the first five verses, Jesus prays for himself. Jesus prays for himself in the first five verses. He says to the Father, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. 
He says to the Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And so the first thing that we see is that Jesus prays to the Father for himself. But then beginning in verse 6, all the way to the end of the chapter, Jesus prays for others. It's a particular group of others that we'll find out in a moment. They are those whom God has given him. Uh, Both those who are immediately given to him, as we see as demonstrated in verses 6 to 19, but also those who will believe in them or believe in him through their message, as we find in chapter 17, verse 20. We'll study that a little bit more closely in a moment. And so, for instance, in verse 6, Jesus prays this way, I have manifested your name to the people you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me. They have kept your word. And so Jesus prays for others, a particular group of others, that the Father has taken out of the world and given to Jesus. He says in verse 9, I am praying for them. He then says, I'm not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. There are only two kinds of people in the world. There are those who belong to Christ and those who do not. Uh, Those who will believe in him and those who will not. And so he prays for those who are believers or will be believers. He's praying for them, not for the world. And then in verse 11, he says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as you are one. So these people taken out of the world, given to Christ, he's praying for them in particular, and he's saying, I'm leaving, so Father, you keep them now. You keep them in my name. Verse 15 says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And the way that that happens, as we mentioned a moment ago, according to verse 17, is through sanctification. So he prays this way for them. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Uh, So who are these people? What does Jesus want for them? These are the people that God has given to Jesus, to whom Jesus gives eternal life for all of those who will ever believe in him. This prayer has a structure. We've been following that structure. There are three parts to it. Uh, Verses 1 through 5 is a part. 6 to 19 is the part that we looked at uh, a few weeks ago. And then verses 20 to 26 is the third part. Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones has attached some labels to each of those parts, which I very much have appreciated uh, in in his uh, exposition of this passage. He calls the first uh, five verses... Uh, He gives it this title, Saved from the World. Saved from the World. And the reason why he comes up with a a title like that for this section is this. In verse 2 and following, we read, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him, and this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Uh, In the next verse, in verse 6, we learn that these people are the ones that have been taken out of the world and given to Jesus. And so the theme of this first section is saved from the world. The world has a lot to do with the theme of this entire chapter. It's how we learn how we relate to the world, which is antagonistic to the things of God. Well, Lloyd-Jones says uh, the first section is, would be entitled Save from the World. The second section, beginning in verse 6 through 19, would be Safe in the World. Save from the World and then Safe in the World. Uh, how does he get that? Well, verse 11 says, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, 
which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. So Jesus is saying, I'm leaving, they're staying, and so you need to keep them. Keep them what? Safe. Safe in the world, that the evil one would not have his way with these people. That doesn't mean it's not dangerous to be in the world. It doesn't mean that it's, can't, we might not find ourselves on the wrong end of various kinds of persecution and even martyrdom, but it does mean that if we're being uh, if we're genuine believers, we'll be kept from the influences of the evil one under the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what that means. So saved from the world, safe in the world. And then the final section, which we'll look at this evening, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones entitles this, Unified for the World. Unified for the World. Well, let's take a look at it, beginning in verse, seven, or verse 20 of chapter 17. He begins this way in this section, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Now, it's kind of interesting as we have sort of explored this passage and identified its structure and that there are three parts to it, uh, some people suggest that there are sort of three separate prayers. In fact, if you have an NIV Bible, uh, it probably reflects that idea that there might be three separate prayers because the NIV puts subtitles in the text. Um, now, the subtitles, you have to remember, are not part of the canonical scriptures. <laughs> they are suggestions made by uh, translators. But the NIV has these titles. The first section, he says, Jesus prays for himself. We sort of recognize that. The second section, it says, Jesus prays for his disciples. And the third section, Jesus prays for all believers. But in a sense, that's really not entirely accurate because the entire prayer really applies both to present and future believers. When I say present believers, I'm talking about the disciples and the apostles who were present with Jesus at that moment. But it also applies to every single believer who has ever lived since that time, including you and me. And so it really is one prayer, including future believers as well as present believers. He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me. So he's praying for everyone, even us. How will these future believers believe in Jesus? Well, it says that they will believe in Jesus through their word. Through the word of the apostles, that's how people come to faith in Jesus Christ. They don't come to faith because Jesus uh, wrote it in the sky or that Jesus appeared in some kind of extraordinary, unusual, supernatural manifestation. People come to saving faith in Jesus through the word of the apostles. That's what the text itself says. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. Uh, in other words, there is no new revelation since the apostles. No new word from God apart from what the apostles have communicated because Jesus indicates that those who will believe in him will believe in him through the word of the apostles. There's no chance that Jesus would show up and reveal himself, for instance, to Joseph Smith in the 19th century or to anyone else for that matter. It's only through the word of the apostles that people come to saving faith in Jesus Christ. So the word of the apostles is central. And the only thing that we can do at least in my estimation, the only thing that I can do is preach the word of the apostles. Does that make sense? Does anybody want to say amen to that? They should. I would think that you would want to say amen to that. Because the word of the apostles is absolutely central. Now, what did the apostles say? 
Well, that's a different question, isn't it? What did the apostles say? Well, the apostles preached the Bible. Now, the question is, what Bible did they have? Yeah, they had the Hebrew Bible, which we know of as the Old Testament. And they did preach the Old Testament. And you can read the Gospels and you see the apostles preaching the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus himself, the day he was resurrected, uh, he's walking down the road to Emmaus and he runs into a couple of disciples. And they're walking along saying, wow, this is strange stuff that's happened. And Jesus said, what's, about, what, what's, what's happened? And they explained what happened. And Jesus started to explain how foolish you are because you're not paying attention to the things. And he goes and recounts all the things in the Old Testament that applied to Jesus himself and his life and ministry. And isn't that amazing? What a, what a Bible study that would have been, huh? And so that's what Jesus did. The apostles preached the Old Testament because Jesus himself preached the Old Testament. So that's the first thing that we need to recognize. So when we teach the word of the apostles, we teach the whole Bible because we teach uh, the Old Testament as well. They certainly were eyewitness account, uh, testimonies of the life and ministry of Jesus. That's why they are apostles because they were around when Jesus actually uh, was on the planet teaching and preaching. And so they were able to recount the things that Jesus said and taught and the things that Jesus did, and they communicated those kinds of things, their testimonies turned into the instructional writings that we know of as the New Testament. And so the Gospels, the record of the life and ministry of Jesus uh, up through the time of his resurrection and ascension is included, as well as the epistles, which give instructions to the new churches that were being established during those particular periods of time. And the New Testament then is essentially the record of the apostles' teaching. And so what we do is we teach the whole Bible. It's incredibly important that you all realize that and support that and understand that and communicate that to others because that's the only way anybody's saved. That's what Jesus says. They're going to come to faith through the word of the apostles. And so that's what we teach, the Bible from beginning to end. By the way, the New Testament was either written by the apostles or it was written by people who were with the apostles and received the sanction of the apostles in their writings. So Matthew was an apostle. Mark was an apostle, but he hung out with Peter. And so essentially the gospel of Mark is essentially the gospel of Peter. Uh, Luke wasn't a disciple, but he hung around with Paul. And so he's recording the, the things that he has researched based upon the testimonies of the other apostles, and his writings have been established as, as canonical scriptures as well. Of course, John was an apostle. Then the epistles were all written either by the apostles or people that are associated with the apostles in one way or another. So the New Testament is apostolic. And when the apostles passed from the scene, there was no more addition to the New Testament. You can't go to your Christian bookstore and find another edition of the New Testament with additional writings after the apostles because Jesus indicates that it's the word of the apostles that accounts for the people who will believe in him. Do you make, does that make sense to you? That's why we're committed in this church and in fact in our whole denomination to teach the word of God. Now let's uh, take a look at what he says. He says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. And then he gives the first request in this section, verse 21, that they may all be one. That they may all be one. I mean, that, that's a tall order, don't you think? 
I mean, how unified is the church of Jesus Christ today? Not so much, is it? That they may all be one. Well, how much one? Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. So he's asking for unity in the people of God, that they may all be one. And by the way, this is not the first time that he's prayed this way. Verse 11, in, a prior, in the prior section, he says this, I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. I'm coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me. Listen, that they may be one, even as we are one. So he's being repetitive here. And you all know what it means to be repetitive. It means you're supposed to pay attention to stuff like that. Okay, so he basically is indicating that he wants the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ, to be one, to be unified. Now, what's the nature of that unity? Well, it's interesting. The nature of that unity is uh, it uses the image of the unity of the Father and the Son. That's a pretty high bar, don't you think? There's no more unified set of beings than the Father and the Son, no closer relationship. In fact, with the entire Trinity, three in person, one in essence, it's, we've uh, recognized from the Scripture. No conflict, no disagreement. Uh, all members of the Trinity are on the same page. The Father thinks the thoughts of the Son, and the Son thinks the thoughts of the Father, and they are both united in every way. And that's the desire of the Son for the people of God. That's quite remarkable, don't you think? That's astonishing. People have tried to create different aspects of Christian unity. One of the ways in which people have done that is that they've uh, just made a pact in a church never to discuss hard issues. If we don't raise any difficult issues, we don't have to disagree with one another. We can all pretend that we're one. But then someone will come along and say, well, what do you think about this? And then you can easily get an argument started because there are always people who disagree about specific issues. I don't think that's what... uh, what Jesus has in mind. Some people then decide, well, we're going to agree to disagree. Well, again, I don't think that that's what the nature of this prayer particularly happens to be. Uh, The means of establishing unity, he says, that they may also be in us. So true, true Christian unity, you see, is established by Christians conforming to the image of Jesus Christ. And the more we're conformed to the image of Jesus Christ, the more the oneness that Jesus prays for becomes a reality among the people of God. That's what Jesus is actually praying for. We find elements of that in Ephesians chapter 4 where Paul uh, says this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. So I've been called to be conformed to the image of Christ. You should act like that. Act like who you are. And then he says this, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. You want to find out what humility, or excuse me, what unity looks like? That's what it looks like. Humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is something that the church needs to work at, work on, to have that kind of of character of the Lord Jesus Christ so that we can actually experience that kind of spiritual oneness. 
And then Paul goes on to say, there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And by the way, you all know that because you know what? You sang it this morning, didn't you? The church's one foundation essentially parrots that statement out of Ephesians chapter 4. So that's the request. It's a high request, isn't it? But Jesus is praying that the people of God would have unity. The purpose for that prayer is important and fascinating as well. It's to be a testimony to the world. He says, so that the world may believe that you sent me. So the world, you see, will make judgments about whether Jesus came from God on the basis of whether or not they see unity in the body of Christ. Let me say that again. The world will make judgments about whether Jesus came from God based upon the unity that they see in the body of Christ. If the world looks at the church and doesn't see unity, looks at the people of God and doesn't see unity, the world will say, eh, there's nothing to this Jesus business. He must not really have come from God. That's what this text says. That's astonishing, isn't it? That ought to catch us up short, I think. That's what evangelism really needs to understand. Evangelism really has more to do with the unity of the people of God than perhaps anything else. I've been to a bunch of evangelism seminars. Many of you have as well. I'm sure Pastor Don has been to a bunch of uh, evangelism seminars. I wonder how many of them say, by the way, first principle of evangelism is the unity of the body of Christ. No, they give us all kinds of strategies and how to start conversations, all kinds of uh, techniques that we might use to help people engage with the questions that re relate to coming to faith in Jesus Christ. But I've very seldom seen anybody say, hey, you know what? The most important thing that you can do in evangelism is to make sure that you are unified in the body of Christ with the people with whom you worship, because that's what Jesus is praying for. It reminds me of another statement that I think uh, is in the same vein. Uh, also in the Gospel of John, chapter 13, verse 34 and following, where Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. You remember that, don't you? Okay, but you know what it says after that? It says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So not only will the world make a, make a judgment about whether Jesus came from God based upon the unity of the church, the world will make a judgment about whether you are a believer in Jesus based upon how you love one another. And by the way, that one another has to do with how you love other people of God in the church. Okay? It's not talking about love for the world. That's important too. But the world will make a judgment and they'll basically say, if these Christians aren't loving each other, who cares about Jesus? They are not real disciples of Jesus. And so that's what's important about this prayer, I think, that it catches us up short. Jesus prays this way for the church. Unity in the body communicates, first of all, that you are his disciple, and secondly, that Jesus is from God. And the result then would be that God gets the glory for all of that. Now that brings us to the next section, that is the means by which this is accomplished. 
And so verse 22, Jesus prays this way, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. So Jesus has given glory to the disciples so that they may be one even as the Father is one with the Son. God has given us glory. Now, that is just almost breathtaking if you think about it for even five minutes. We've been given glory so that we can be one, so that we can manifest his glory. That's a, a pretty radical change, by the way, from the Old Testament economy of things. Remember, Moses asks God one time to show me your glory. Remember that? Uh, when I say remember that, I don't mean that you were there when that happened, but, but you remember the story. He asked God to show him his, his glory, and uh, God says, no, you can't see my glory. No one can see my glory and live. But now, when Jesus shows up on the scene, all of a sudden, now we can see a glimpse of the glory of God, because John writes in chapter 1, verse 14 of his gospel, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have beheld what? His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So Jesus shows up, and all of a sudden, we can see the glory of God. Moses could only dream about the glory of God, catch the backside of the glory of God as the glory of God passed by him after he was placed in the cleft of the rock. But Jesus shows up and we're able to see the glory of God. But it gets even better than that because in the New Testament economy under the new covenant, we get to participate in that glory. We get to participate in that glory. Uh, Peter puts it this way in his first epistle, beginning in verse 3. Excuse me, his second epistle, beginning in verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted us his very precious and very great promises, so that through them, listen to this, you may become partakers of the divine nature having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Partakers of the divine nature. That's astonishing that through Jesus, through the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, indwelling in the lives of believers, there is a sense in which we can actually manifest in some measure the glory of God. The glory is the visible manifestation of the nature and character of God. True godliness, true Christ-likeness is displayed in the believer who walks with the Spirit, who lives by the Spirit. The Spirit of Christ dwelling in us enables us to represent the glory of God to a watching world so the whole world will know that we are his disciples and that the world will know that Jesus came from the Father because you and I are called into that relationship with God by the indwelling of the Spirit of God to display the glory of God to a watching world. And then Jesus goes on to pray in verse 23, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. It's another repetition of this prayer for unity. It's the third time in this prayer that Jesus has mentioned it. It's a repetition of the result as well that the world would know that Jesus came from the Father, that evangelical purpose. And the importance of the repetition is obvious to the Jew and should be obvious to us. 
Not only that Jesus came from God, but also that the world would know that God loved his people, God loved his chosen ones, just as he loved his son. Well, that's essentially the essence of the first request. The second request shows up in verse 24, where Jesus prays this way, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's the glory once again. So that Jesus, uh, the, the, the next request is that, that we, the people of God, not only the disciples and the apostles who were with Jesus at that time, but also all who would believe in him, would be with Jesus where he is or will shortly be from that perspective in heaven. That's the great future hope of the believer. Yes, we're stuck here in this world right now, but the great future hope of the believer is that ultimately we will be with Jesus in his glory and so that we would behold his glory. His original glory, as it says in verse 5 when Jesus had prayed, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. There's a sense in which we have been given his glory for now, and yet later we'll experience it in a fullness that we can't even imagine. That's the future hope of the believer, and that's the second request that Jesus makes for all those who will believe in him. And then the prayer concludes with a crowning conclusion where Jesus prays this way, O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. In this conclusion, all the key players are mentioned. The Father, who is now called the Righteous Father. The world, which is at enmity uh, with the Father, is also mentioned. The Son, who knows the Father and is sent by him, is mentioned. Uh, the word these refers to those who were chosen out of the world, those who were known by the Son, those who knew the Son came from the Father. So all the key players are mentioned in this conclusion. All the primary activities are mentioned. The Son has made the God's name known and will continue to make it known. Why? Because the love that the Father had for the Son might be in those who were those who Christ gave eternal life. And that also that the Son may be in the chosen, in the people of God, in by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul would write in, in Colossians in chapter 1, to them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ, what? In you, the hope of what? The hope of glory. Christ in you, the hope of glory. That's a good summation, essentially, of how Jesus prays in this prayer. Saved out of the world, kept safe in the world, but called to be unified for the world. And Jesus intends that we would have the response that he records in verse 13, right in the middle of this chapter, when he says, but now I'm coming to you, these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Another translation puts it this way, that they may have the full measure of my joy within them. 
How can you not study this prayer and have your heart erupt with the joy that comes from God himself that we would participate in the glory of God, that we would in fact be instruments of, the, of manifesting the glory of God to a watching world, that the unity of the people of God would be the means by which the world will take note and recognize that Jesus came from God. These are all the things that Jesus desires for the people that God has given to him out of the world to whom Jesus has given eternal life. That's the gospel from God's perspective. What a glorious prayer that is. Heavenly Father, we're overwhelmed by the sense of the expansiveness of, of this gospel, the fact that you have laid out this extraordinary plan of salvation, uh, that uh, in these words of Jesus, as we are able to eavesdrop on his conversation of intimacy with the Father, that you have revealed that you, and die, you desire to glorify yourself in and through your people. Oh, Father, we pray that we would exhibit that kind of unity in this place and that we would have the glory of God living in us by the power of the Spirit of God and that you would enable us, Father, to have that kind of testimony and witness so that the world, which is all around us, might take notice and recognize that the Father has sent the Son and will give glory to you for all of this when it unfolds before us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.